Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. Joining us today is Arnold Kling. He's adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and author of The Three Languages of Politics, the third edition of which was just released by Libertarianism.org Press. Welcome back to the show, Arnold. Oh, thanks, Aaron. Your book is about how we talk about politics, but maybe we can start with how we don't talk about politics. There's a there's kind of a folk theory of what political conversation looks like in this country that your book is to a great extent a pushing back on a reaction against. So what is that what is that idealized view before we get to what you think it actually looks like? Well, it, it, we might think of it as persuasion that is people, you know, Imagine playing by the rules of a high school debate team where, you know, of course, you have to respect the people on the other side. There's nothing personal involved. You're just assembling facts and logic to try to make the most persuasive case for your point of view that you can. Uh, that would be idealized. I don't think anyone believes that that's really ever been the case in politics. But I think it's – there. Certainly, I think there have been times in the past where certain contexts or certain institutions could be counted on to follow that kind of model or attempt to follow it. And I think that's what's what's gone away in, in the 21st century, that uh, the alternative, which I call demonization of just trying to, you know, imagine you, you know, someone just cut you off on the highway and you just want the whole world to know what a awful human being that person is. Well, that trying to define your opponents as awful human beings is what I call demonization. And that's spread beyond where where it used to be uh, 50, 100 years ago. Turning to your book then and your thesis, I've, now I have seen you um, summarize this book in a literal song and dance. That is true. And well, how did you see that at, at a conference was that here? Live? It was live, you and unfortunately, oh, I, I was, I'm hoping it wasn't taped. That's all. As long as it wasn't taped, I'm okay. Well, we're taping now. We're taping now. So what I was, we unfortunately, this is a this is an audio only medium, so our audience can't necessarily get the full experience. But can you give us the song version of the pitch? I could, but my voice is my weakest part of it, of the song and oh, okay. dance routine. So let's pass on that. <laughs> So if we're not going to do the musical version, uh, summarize the non-musical okay. version. Okay. The non-musical version, start with three words that describe bad things, um, oppression, barbarism, and coercion. So oppression is when one class of people uh, really mistreats another class of people you know, very consistently. Uh, and makes them suffer. So, you know, historical examples, you know, the Holocaust, slavery, things like that. That's oppression. Uh, barbarism is when people revert to more primitive sorts of behavior where they're not, um, you know, where they may be more violent. Uh, they're violating what we would view as acceptable norms. And coercion is when you're forced to do something because someone is threatening to do violence to you if you don't do it. And, you know, for libertarians, that's usually a government official that, that there, you, know, you don't pay taxes because you want to pay taxes. You pay taxes because of the implicit threat that you'll go to prison if you don't. So those are these three bad things. We all agree that they're bad. But it seems that we have separated the political tribes that differ into where they focus on what bad is. And so progressives seem to focus particularly on the oppression issue. And so if when a progressive encounters someone who disagrees with them uh, and they get really upset, they'll accuse them of being in an oppressor class. So we hear people talking about you know, progressives accusing people of being racist, white supremacists, misogynists, and so on. So they're accused of being oppressors. Um, conservatives particularly focus on the civilization barbarism axis. Uh, so if they really f are against somebody, they'll accuse them of really trying to bring down civilization and make us revert to barbarism. 
And libertarians will uh, <laughs> attack people as being status, that, oh, you just really want to use the power of the state to coerce people to get your way. Now, obviously, this isn't. I mean, there's overlaps. As you said, we all think these things are bad. So is it really just signaling going on, essentially? Is that, or is it, does it say something about the underlying belief structure? Um, I'm not, I wouldn't press too hard that it says something about the underlying belief structure. I think it, I use the term languages and I like to use the term demonization. So what you can predict with most accuracy, I think, using this three-axis model is that when one of the tribes demonizes those who disagree, it will often be on these axes. So you can pretty much count on when, when progressives really got their back to the wall and they're just angry and trying to denounce somebody, they will accuse them of being in this oppressor class and similarly on the other axes. Does this mean then that these are languages that typically are spoken to other members of one's own tribe. So like that I – if I am a progressive and I want to signal to other people that I'm a progressive, I talk about oppressors and oppressed um, versus if I am a progressive trying to talk to a libertarian or conservative and convince them of my viewpoint, I will frame issues in oppressor-oppressed language. Uh, I think – I think you'll do tend to if you're a progressive you'll tend to do both but when you're talking to people who are not fellow progressives they won't hear it they won't hear it properly so um let's just take a specific example let's take uh the NFL football players who are kneeling during the national anthem uh you know, a progressive can talk all day about you know, the historical injustices uh, that African Americans have faced, and a conservative will still not hear that as a justification for kneeling during the national anthem. By the same token, a conservative can all talk all day about the uh, flag and the national anthem being symbols of, you know, um, of American tradition and American civilization, and you can't disrespect those, and progressives won't hear that. So um, so in practice, and this is really was the original insight I had back in 2013 that made me write this book, in practice, most political commentary does not serve to open the minds of the other side. It isn't intended to open the minds of your own side. So it ends up by default serving the purpose of closing the minds of, on your own side, sort of reinforcing their prejudices and uh, ways of looking at things and sort of – and their tribal loyalty. And then going back to your point about signaling, yeah, it's it's a great way to very quickly uh, signal to people on in your tribe that, that you are you know on their same wavelength. And you weren't predicting Donald Trump, I assume, when you read this when when you wrote this book in twenty thirteen. Uh, <laughs> like no one was. <laughs> no, I, I was not. And I think he changed things in, in a lot of ways. I don't think he sort of banged the conservative drum consistently. He did somewhat. Um there are some notable examples. He gave a speech this was after he was president, he gave a speech in Warsaw in which he talked about how great Western values were and how they were under threat. Uh, which went over really well with conservatives. It was a great civilization versus barbarism speech. His, his inaugural address was also about the American carnage speech where things are sort of dissolving into barbarism well, and, and he, I'm the only one who can fix it. Kind he of launched thing. his campaign with warnings about Mexico sending rapists across the border too, which is a form of this. The, barbar the barbarians yeah, are coming. Absolutely. Um, but I think a lot of the... A lot of the Trump phenomenon is best captured in, you know, I call it the Bobos versus anti-Bobos, which goes back to David Brooks' bourgeois bohemians, sort of the people who are very cultured and very cosmopolitan um, versus people who, um, you know, the populace who, who are, resent the cosmopolitan groups. And, I mean, another great terminologies, the anywheres versus the somewheres, people who are comfortable anywhere, they'd be happy in Prague, they'd be happy in 
other countries versus somewheres, people who are very rooted in a particular location. Anyway, Trump, I think, uh, tapped into that, at least at the margin, and that's how he kind of stole this, the, those, the key states from the Democrats. So he's, he's sort of a different phenomenon. Um, I think what, relative to the book, I think, first of all, his, um, you know, demonization is what he's all about. And I think that's actually a new thing for the presidency. So yeah. when I'm talking about the institution... At least in public. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. sure, I'm and, sure and, in back yeah. rooms they yeah. demonize well, you know, all the time. Richard yeah. Nixon certainly was demonizing... <laughs> I, I often Trump. say this, Trump is just Nixon with a Twitter account. I mean, <laughs> the stuff that Nixon actually said to his people is very similar. Yes. Yeah. But that makes a difference. That's an important distinction. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I think it, it used to be, it was, you know, you, you protected the Oval Office from this kind of demonization. Uh, you sent the vice president out. Out, you sent various surrogates out, but you protect the Oval Office, and you know that's one institution. And uh, while we're at it, I'll say the other institution. Th this is obviously changes since I first wrote the book, um, and since the, the and since the second edition it came out. What's what's new is you know things have gotten worse in this sort of persuasion versus demonization. When I write the book, I'm upset that persuasion seems to be leaking out of the media op-ed world and it's turning to demonization and now we see it in two places one is the presidency and the other is i think the college campus where it seems like demonization has really uh you know made an upsurge and persuasion which you, you used to assume would be a hundred percent of the discourse on a college campus is now uh kind of in trouble now, you the other fact of Trump, which comes in there afterward, which I think maybe we could draw a connection, because one thing you get from demonization, they're not exactly tribalism and demonization are not exactly the same thing. They come together, so you have these signaling languages of politics, this sort of way that we're talking about the in crowd and the out crowd, and then you get increased tribalism, and then tribalism. And I think you quote Andrew Sullivan as sort of the 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 way that the Republican Party, when it's a tribe now led by Donald Trump will switch on free trade and and immigration i mean i mean never that positive on immigration but just just follow him and overnight it seems like it just switched him because tribes do that you know rather than nations or other types of groups yeah that i think you know that's an important point and um and one of the things in this <laughs> new edition a big difference between this new edition and previous editions is that political psychology has just blossomed. Under, I mean, if there's if there's one thing that that the Trump phenomenon has, uh, you know, created a cottage industry. Created, and, yeah, 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 and um, there was uh, you know an interesting book by Liliana Mason of uh, University of Maryland, and she just noted that. Um, the big increase in sort of hostility between Democrats and Republicans is on sort of what's called the temperature uh, indicator of sort of how much they hate the other party. On the issues, there's actually not been nearly as much divergence. And that gets to your point that people have even switched on the issues. And it, it's, it, it just doesn't seem that the increased polarization is very much issue-driven. Why is that? And it gets to another question that I had, which was if we're distinguishing – so we've got tribes um, and which are sets in, in politics, we would think of those tribes as kind of ideological clusters. Um, but if we've got those, why is the way that we're – or an important way that we're distinguishing each other in how we talk versus simply – the content of our ideas that like if you and I were to sit down and start having a debate, it would become very clear where we disagreed with each other and it would become clear that maybe I agree more with this person over here, but we wouldn't necessarily have to resort to like talking about the world entirely differently. Yeah, I guess my first thought is that I think a lot of people don't really fit the ideological cluster model and I think you know, maybe – one thing about these, you know, these three axes, oppressor, oppressed, civilization, barbarism, 
uh, liberty coercion is it maybe makes it sound like, oh, yeah, we've got some, you know, I've nailed down some ideological clusters. But I think Trevor has it right that a lot of this tribalism seems to be uh, <laughs> people just decide this is my identity and then they – uh, that in turn determines which signals that are most important to them. And then uh, they often align their positions on particular issues to their tribes, but then sometimes they don't, and sometimes they seem to be able to live with a, a different idea position on an issue than you know their tribe espouses. But as long as they, they still, for whatever reason, feel that tribal identity, they, they stick with it. Do you think this was these at least these three values? I mean, those are not, these are not the only political values, but they're very common, and they've been. But have things been realigned a little bit more than say they were in 1950? Because 1950, people talked about oppression and liberty and barbarism, uh, but have it has it has it maybe as a yeah. percentage of constituency? Oh changed? yeah, I, I think it's quite different. I was thinking about this recently that you know if you'd asked sort of what does you know politics revolve around in 1950, it was probably a lot of it was communism and anti-communism. Of course, yeah. and um, I, I I don't. I don't think that this model – and this is actually somewhat encouraging, I hope, is that I don't think this model is a durable model. So it could it could change. What I fear is durable is the psychology of opposition, of, say, of, of uh, black and white, good and bad, that kind of um, outlook. And I think that's sort of – you know, even if, if – uh, Mr. Trump is realigning politics in some ways, and again, I, I don't think it's permanent, but I, uh, certainly temporarily, this sort of uh, you know Bobo anti Bobo alignment. I mean, what's it, that may not be consistent with those three axes, but it is consistent with this stark opposition uh, here. You know, we're good, they're bad, and that's that's true on all sides. I mean the. The Bobos hate Trump, and uh, in fact, in David Brooks' original book, Bobos in Paradise, he listed a bunch of things that the Bobos don't like, and the very first one on the list is in 1999, is Donald Trump. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, there's just a visceral hatred there, and there's clearly a visceral hatred on the part of Trump supporters for the elites, the deep state, whatever you would call it. Yeah, that was one of the things that struck me when I was going back and prepping for this is it seems like Trump has caused some of the tribes to talk more in the emphasis of some of the other tribes. So like I'm thinking progressives seem much more concerned with barbarism than they used to be, but they see barbarism as assaults on institutions and Trump supporters representing right. this. Right. Um, and and the oppression, the Trump supporters, we're being oppressed by yeah. the elites. College, uh, conservatives on college campuses are being oppressed yeah. by. Yeah. You know. uh, yeah. Although, you know, that doesn't I think it doesn't truly fit the oppressor oppressed narrative because, you know, they're, they're really not like a, a you know, an, an ethnic class or so or whatever. But no, I think what, what you said is, is absolutely right. I was watching. Uh, a ridiculously long podcast with Eric Weinstein and Timur Koran, and they, they they go on on many things, but one of which is that as Trump sort of crashes through the guardrails of politics. So the example that Koran reminded me of, I had forgotten, is that you know he insulted John McCain's patriotism, and you cannot get more violation of conservative guardrails than that. And Coran's point is that actually helped him with his supporters because his supporters said he's willing to do anything when he goes to Washington, he's not going to go native. That that, that you know that was a positive thing. And so that goes back to your point. So progressives saying, wait a minute, guardrails. I thought conservatives liked guardrails. They believed that guardrails are what keep you from smashing into the telephone poles of life. You know, that's you know we're for that what happened what happened to that is a little bit of that say that confusion 
because what Trump has done is exposed fault lines and political coalitions, that it's not that conservatives used to say that they were in favor of guardrails and now they're not, but that a particular part of the conservative coalition, which wasn't really having its voice heard, now is, but the same people who have been in favor of guardrails still are. They're just now the never Trumpers or whatever else. Or some of them are are working coming up with ways to rationalize supporting Trump. I mean, he didn't lose in the end. I think the one of the smallest slivers in political life is Republicans abandoning Trump. I mean, that's you know there were some, but they're mostly within a. Ten mile radius of where we sit, <laughs> and uh, their votes don't count for very much. At least if they live in Maryland or D.C. Do you see the? So I mentioned the fifties before. Clearly, we've had a wholesale shift in a pretty short amount of time in how we get news, and where we get news from, and where we what sources form our opinions. And I mean, you could start it even with, let's say, Fox News's advent, but but then with the internet and everything else, and that's not it's not Walter Cronkite anymore. It's not Tom Brokaw. It's not, it's 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 a sort of wild west out there, and uh, and it seems to be that when people want to consume news and they have a choice and they don't just have ABC, PB, CBS and NBC and they have a choice for I want to go to the place that just tells me I'm really good and they're really bad and that makes me feel really good that that's actually what people want to want to choose and so we're seeing this play out in in news market and, and now rhetoric and everything else too. Yeah, that, that I think that the change in media environment is a is a big reason for the, the sort of the increased tribalism you had you know, your your days of the three networks, they necessarily were competing for a mass audience. And so um, they, you, you, they wanted to be careful not to be too much on one side because they would lose more people than they would gain. Uh, but as the environment splinters, then you have people going after niches, like you say, and then people respond to that. Um, as an aside, I would say... Our political environment looks just way more splintered. You know, if we had a uh, parliamentary system, proportional representation, can you imagine how many more parties we would have now than just just the the two? It's just sort of. I think there's a there's a real tension between this two party system and the kind of splintered nature of the electorate. That's that's just another feature but the um the but you can see the splintering all over the place in the media and in you know people who are you know subscribing to different youtube channels or uh listening to different podcasts and so on so what this is the question i find myself asking where we're not putting that genie back in the bottle i mean actually the weird time was post war america for media compared to the rest of American history. And so we have boomers being like, man, Walter Cronkite, those are the days, you know, the most trusted man in America told you what you needed to have. We're losing the war in Vietnam and that's all that stuff. And now, and now it's very different, but it's not going away. And in that sense, in terms of schismic, schismatic stuff, we, you know, we thought that Facebook was this one thing, but you know, Facebook is concerned about TikTok because if you're 15, you're you're, you're doing something that's even more decentralized than Facebook, and it's going to get crazier. And we and we have to figure out how to govern a country with this as the input, which I think is a really interesting question. Yeah, I, I do think that. Or put this so one. You know, there are various reasons one can be hopeful, and one reason to be hopeful is that we just haven't had time to adapt to the media environment, and maybe there will be some kind of cultural adaptation. Whereas now, the the current the immediate cultural response is um, just to everyone to get very outraged very easily. I mean. One way I describe it is that this environment has created a collision between what used to be two separate worlds, the what I, I like to call the one the sub-Dunbar world of, you know, the family, your neighborhood, 
um, <laughs> your immediate colleagues at work, people, you know, less than the Dunbar number of 150 uh, okay, people. Okay, the Dunbar number. I was like, Dunbar. <laughs> <laughs> the Dunbar number, yes. And uh, a collision between that world and the larger world of organizations and politics. Um, so those used to be kind of separate in most people's lives. But now because people, <laughs> I think, experience, like on Facebook and so on, they experience what used to be them out there, you know, running the world as in my face. Um, and a, a real, a, a, maybe even a bigger sense, not just the people running the world, but uh, the crazies on the other side. So, you know, used to be, you didn't, you know, the classic 1977 Skokie, Illinois, Nazis march through Skokie, Illinois. That march it was very controversial at the time, but it lasts one day, they're never heard from again. Nowadays, you know, Charlottesville is still very high in people's minds. Um, and uh, all these incidents just go right in your face. And I think in part that explains why free speech is not as popular as it used to be. Because uh, when these people, when the, I, I call it bad people saying bad things, disappear 99% of the time. Or you just don't run into them. Yeah, you just, you don't run into them. They're, they're not in the media 99% of the time. That's fine. But when you know that they're out there and you're being constantly reminded that they're out there, uh, then you feel like I've got to do something about it. And maybe the thing you most want to do is take away their free speech, which I don't think is the right answer. But that gets back to the issue of how does the culture adapt to this new environment? And I think we're struggling with that. Well, it seems like this this new environment, there's as far as our relationship to it and what's new about it and where this tribalism might come from, that on the one hand, we talked about the the pluralism of it that suddenly there's there's far more views represented there's far more outlets representing different perspectives and you as an individual so you have you have the choice to find ones that are more narrowly tailored to your interests but because so much of our online life which is increasingly so much of our lives is in the form of aggregators that are pulling from multiple sources. Like you're not, it's not like in the days of blogs where I had five blogs I visited every day, but if there were all sorts of other blogs out there, I'd probably never see them unless someone happened to like write about it. Um, but now life is lived in Twitter or Facebook. There are aggregators that are just pulling, you know, so I can find the things that I'm interested in, but I'm also constantly exposed to stuff way outside of my bubble. And that's so that's kind of the pluralism side. But then we also have, it seems like a shift in the way that we approach. Can I just interrupt one second? Sure. Come back. I think, unfortunately, for now, the way we're exposed to things outside the, our bubble is the most out, we're given the most outrageous picture of them. So, you know, I think uh, – so people on the left are convinced that, you know, the alt-right is, you know, three-quarters of Donald Trump's support. And people on the right are convinced that the most extreme – you know, that AOC represents, you know, the re mainstream Democrats. And um, and and there's, there's a lot of dynamic at work. The way – the way, you know, evolutionarily, a good way to call attention to yourself um, is to be able to tell people about immediate threats because you know immediate threats in the old, you know in the prehistoric period were very important to be able to know about, and so uh, it's easy to call attention to yourself by as a conservative by talking about how threatening the extreme progressives are, and same with with, with the other tribes. So so we're not being exposed to other points of view as oh you know here's an here's another way to think about things it's more like we're being exposed to a negative caricature of of other tribes right and so i think i think that's exactly right and i think that's that that second part of so there's there's kind of the baseline assumption of like there's pluralism in sources and exposure to things and that's that's probably not going to change like we're not going to i don't see us consolidating back to abc nbc and cbs only um, but 
what we also have is what you just pointed out, which is the way that we interact with that. And so, yes, on the supply side, I suppose, we are getting served things that are tuned to be outrageous because that's what's going to get us to click and share and comment and so on. Um, but we also, it seems like we are seeking that stuff out. Like we have, we've decided that the best way to immerse ourselves in a pluralistic news environment is to find all the stuff that upsets us because it's fun and it's engaging and so on. Um, and that seems like the thing that maybe is the most likely to change as we gain more exposure to this media environment. In the same way, like, so we had phones are incredibly addictive and there's lots of stuff going off and people become buried in them. And then what we have seen over the last several years is people figuring out kind of a degree of attention hygiene where I'm going to turn off my notifications or I'm going to install software that blocks this stuff out and we're becoming like more mindful in our approach as we get used to this new environment. And so I wonder if we could see something similar where people start to say, yes, there's lots of sources, but it's maybe not good for me and kind of the, the constant self-improvement mindset that seems to dominate among millennials, right? Like this is – we're going to – you know, just like I'm going to fast every two weeks, I'm going to go on like a news fast every two weeks and so on. That, that part of the culture might shift so we're better interacting with the pluralistic sources. I think that's one possible channel, but I would caution you that a lot of the book, the Three Languages book, delves into – Sort of the psychological attraction of do of doing demonization versus persuasion. You know, it's less work. It's more emotionally satisfying, um, and it just seems to be a habit people have. There's this uh, one of my favorite sort of t little topics in the book is called the law of asymmetric insight which is when when you find that somebody disagrees with you you try to find you know it it's difficult that there's some cognitive dissonance, dissonance there oh Aaron who I respect disagrees with me what well, that, that's a problem uh, but if I if I don't respect Aaron if I if I say oh well he's just he's just doing that because he's a bloody so and so well then that that makes it easier it gets rid of the cognitive dissonance and so what you have is people who say, um, you know, you're not, I don't have to listen to, to or they, they tell other other people in the same tribe, you don't have to listen to those, those people because they're, they're shills, just bad they're hacks, they're, they're shills, they're hacks, they're bad people, they're... Yeah, they're, they're just doing it because, <clears throat> yeah. they're just saying it because, they're, they're not giving, they're saying, they're not giving you the real reason for their beliefs. And... That is really what a lot of political commentary degenerated into, and that's what you know when I was first writing the book and first noticing that. Um, but what that gets to, and in answer to your question, is I think there's just there's a lot of you know psychology that um, that encourages people to use these simple heuristics of demonization rather than engage in the the more challenging task of persuasion and i think that's that's a much tougher cultural shift to to make and in fact i think that's where the cultural shift has been going in, in reverse and again i go back to the college campuses where you know you you're supposed to be taught to uh, be able to put yourself in the mind of people with different points of view and now there's just this trend to, you know, to shut down people with different points of view. It reminds me of our colleague Alex Narasta, who likes to go and poke people on Fox News every now and then. I believe he was being interviewed by Laura Ingram, who at one time probably would have said many nice things about Cato, or at least some nice things about Cato. But she accused him of, she said, why is the Cato Institute want more immigration? Do, do your 
corporate backers just want cheaper workers. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and, and, and exactly. so it just had completely switched. Like, we're now the other to, to her. Right. Uh, I think 10 years it, ago, she would have been, and, and now our motives are suspect yeah. uh, for, for why we would want more open immigration. Yeah, that's a classic asymmetric insight. Yeah, you say, you, you're giving me all these overt reasons why immigration's okay, but really, it's just, you're, you know, I'll tell you why you really are saying that. Yeah. So how much does this tie into another factor that it's been? You, you mentioned the Bobo thing. And you know, a lot of people, I feel like increasingly even over the last couple of years, people have noticed Charles Murray's book coming apart from 2012 is more and more relevant. And you do see this cultural divide. And that you know, it could follow the media thing we've been talking about that what you do in rural America is very different than what you do when you have somewheres and anywheres or <laughs> anywheres in, in this place uh, cosmopolitan's globalist kind of thing guns is the one that really gets me on this where it's not even a debate anymore uh, it's a cultural signal and you have some people in the northeast who have never seen maybe been around a gun and their reaction to him is is disgust i would say that you you can't really have a coherent conversation about what gun policy should look like when someone's emotional response to guns like if you held out a gun to them they would they would recoil like you were holding a, a cobra or 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 some sort of you know fetid fetid rotting yeah yeah exactly so so of course they're not going to have a conversation and and that's not true about all political subjects I mean, taxes is not exactly the same way. Um, I mean, it's it's a few of these have become more signaling devices than and in, in indications. They were the kind of things that you have bumper stickers for is much less, much more common to have guns like pro or anti than like I'm for raising the top marginal tax rate to forty four percent. That I mean, yeah. maybe there's or that I bumper sticker security or for social security reform exactly, and, yeah. and and then that also seems to be cultural and regional and maybe tied to some of these things you already mentioned. Yeah, there's definitely a cultural divide. A friend of mine came up with an interesting point of, um, you know, compare college-educated women with non-college-educated men and just sort of that cultural divide. And, you know, that <laughs> has become one of the most sharpest political divides out there. When people are using these languages, when they're um – they're looking at the world from within one of these tribes, one of these perspectives. Just to, to kind of clarify how this plays out, is it is it a difference in I call it worldview versus emphasis? So if I'm a um, if I'm a libertarian, do I on the one hand just kind of naturally latch on to those issues out in the world that best fit a coercion um, axis, like a freedom versus coercion, and those are the issues that I just happen to talk about? Or do I tend to try to figure out how every issue fits into that? And the the reason I ask is because it seems like if it's more the latter and we're talking about demonization, um, if it makes it seem more likely that I can say, well, these people, if they're like everything around me is a matter of freedom and coercion, but these people aren't talking about that. So therefore, they must not care about freedom and coercion, which then makes them – I mean anyone who's like, well, I'm pro-coercion is probably a bad person, right? Like, And so it makes it easier, whereas if it's just like we're kind of all just placing the emphasis on different issues, then – that seems like an easier thing to rectify that like, well, I just happen to care like this is the same way as in this building there are, you know, the housing policy people are like, boy, housing policy is like the most important thing in the world. Uh, <laughs> and and the healthcare guys like, well, healthcare is the most important thing in the world. Ah, but but they, it's actually monetary. But it's actually monetary <laughs> policy. But they can like they can talk to each other because they're not it's they're not like saying like, well, the only thing that matters is housing policy. And if you can't see that, you're an yeah, evil person. Yeah. Well, I think the um I think what's interesting is that there – it seems to be that there are many issues and I think the media selects these issues. You know, We talk about the media environment and I think it selects for the issues that um, 
each side has a strong view on. So again, the uh, you know the football players. Why was that such a big story? I mean, who cares if a few football players are kneeling during the national anthem? What makes it a compelling story? is that the progressives and the conservatives just see it with such different frames and they, they, they view it so strongly within their own axes. How much are people pushing each other to use the languages in even more starkly? Because I find that to be an interesting thing where it's um, in some social situations and some debates and just some you know tribal situations, the more tribal that they're being, uh, the more it might push you to be more tribal too, right? So you could have a you know, situation of college football where, you know, you if the Ohio State is going to deck themselves out and do all this stuff, then the Michigan people have got to answer, basically. And so if it's if it's going to say, if if we're going to have this policy that we need to have, you know, so it's, so it's, whether it's policies and then rhetoric. So restrict immigration. Now the Democrats are open borders. I mean, who knew? Ten yeah, years ago, that right. would have been wonderful to know. But no, who knew? They're open yeah. borders now. Yeah. How much we see that, do you think? Yeah, I well, I think... Um, that's probably a result of uh, what's called sorting of people. So people are going to have more nuanced views and less tribal views if they encounter on a day-to-day -day basis people with from different tribes. But what's happened over the past few decades is that people really have separated, you know, geographically you know, by social class and so on, so that you know there are. A lot of I, th I assume that there are a lot of people who voted uh, for Hillary Clinton who never met a Trump supporter personally, who never have had more than a, a ten-second encounter with a Trump supporter, and probably vice versa. So <laughs> that is bound to increase tribalism because if you only talk to your own side, all you know, you just the natural. I mean, in fact. Uh, there's some psychological research that shows this, and uh, I was just reading it in Cass Sunstein's book on conformity. That if you put like-minded people together, they become more extreme, and you know, we, we've seen that play out. So, what can libertarians do in this? I mean, we, we have the languages of politics. We have all this. I remember. A couple of years ago, our friend Catherine Mango Ward has been on the show's uh, editor at Reason Magazine, contributed to a Washington Post magazine piece about how to fix our divided politics. And her suggestion was befriend a libertarian, which I actually kind of appreciated. You know, it's like, I mean, maybe it's a little bit self-aggrandizing, but it's like we kind of are orphans in this. Yeah, possibly. well, it's, yeah. I mean, my line is, you know, like, you know, the college students you know, left-wing college students cried after the last election. We cry after every election. But um, <laughs> does someone? It's have really to odd that I mean, if you think about how how do libertarians end up being the people who want to see civility? And I mean, I'm not sure I have the answer to that. Um, but I think it's true. I think in the last few years, like a lot of the pleas for civility in politics have come from the libertarian side, and that's you know. If you think of, you know, some of the historical libertarians, I don't, I don't think of them as being not combative. Yeah, know? Lysander Spooner is uh, usually not the first civility uh, person. Yeah, Ayn uh, Rand was Ayn not Rand, not yeah, a not yeah. you know she was combative. Rothbard's combative. Uh, why is it? Why is it that we're like trying to hold up a white flag? What's could going it, on? Could it have something to do with our commitment to freedom of expression? That that. Incivility to some extent is an attempt to shut down other people and other sides of conversations to just like if you're incivil to someone, you're just saying like, I don't respect you. Um, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to shout over you. Um, and all of those are are against kind of this crux of freedom of speech and freedom of expression, which is so important to the libertarian position. It's like the to some extent, like the kind of cornerstone of the whole thing is that we need to be able to have these conversations and hash stuff out. Yeah, that could be an explanation. Yeah. I, I think it's related, but I also think personally that, especially in my in our little world, which is a very small world, like Butway libertarian world, let's be honest. But I mean, but doing my job, you you you're 
building up these barriers to any sort of partisan allegiance whatsoever. I mean, we have a, an understanding that, you know, even if the Republicans did something good this time, like, you know, those are not our people, like, and they will disappoint you tomorrow if, if you if they made you do something good today. And so if you really feel an aversion to identifying with any actual party or group or group, then then you're not going to get sucked into those disputes. You're going to be able to see it. You know, it's like Ohio State, Michigan fans, and I'm an Oklahoma fan, and I can watch that thing and be like, you know, look, like Michigan, sorry, every call did not go against you uh, in that game. And I'm, you know, I can see that because I'm an Oklahoma fan. But when I watch Texas, you know, that makes it a little bit more difficult. But yeah. when I'm involved in the battle. Yeah, well, that's true. But it's still, I think it still leaves a question of, you know, why, why is it now we're especially, uh, you know, because we've always been sort of neutral between Republicans and Democrats, but why is it now that there's this uh, big concern? I think, you know, maybe your point about free speech, uh, Aaron's point about free speech speaks to that. I wonder if there, there are just some, some other things going on in the, in the current environment that, that make, you know, libertarian, you know, again, libertarians not, you know, you just don't think of libertarians as wanting to create kumbaya, you know, it just <laughs> isn't. That's, you think that's peaceful. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so are we, are we optimistic? I mean, that's what I guess a question even for Aaron, I don't know, and, and Arnold, and I mean, does it get better? Well, I think there, there are a few reasons why it might. First of all, I think just the pace of change, the pace at which it got worse is so fast that on the one hand that that makes it very depressing. I mean, this is very you know I can't talk to anybody of a sort of a you know libertarian slash conservative outlook who isn't very depressed uh, about the current situation. But it did change very fast, and that means maybe the pace of change is fast, and somehow there'll be another change. Um, there's this issue of cultural adaptation that you've raised that, you know, the, we're, you know, we've had very little time to adapt to this cell phone, internet, always on environment. Um, the other thing is, uh, and this goes back a little bit to my listening to that podcast with, uh, Weinstein and Koran, a lot of people, may be pretending to put up with stuff that they don't really like. And I'm, I'm thinking, again, it's, you know, on college campuses, putting up with uh, with this shutdown culture. I think the typical college administrator, the simplest path for them is to just cave in. Well, also, how about other students who aren't at the front line of the protest, but maybe don't really like the cancel culture, but they don't really want to speak up about it, too. Right. right. All sorts of people don't want to speak up about it. Uh, and the easiest one for the administrator to respond to is the, is the, is the people who are shouting, who might shout. Um, and I think also every administrator, regardless of sort of that, I think they come at – most of them come at it with a genuine concern of – are we really doing enough for African Americans and women on campus? There, I think they. they I mean, it's, it's it isn't like they're just being intimidated into it, but I think they are perhaps being intimidated into putting up with demonization methods rather than letting having the campus be persuasion oriented. Um, so, you know, one possibility you can have a sort of a you can imagine a fantasy petition that went out there that said, you know, we don't think college campuses should be about demonization. We think that they should be about persuasion. And all of a sudden, you know, ninety five percent of the key constituents in colleges and universities would sign that fantasy petition, and that would would. You know, change at least change the environment there, which I think is pretty important in terms of, you know, I think there's a, um, you know, I think that that might then seep back into maybe media. So maybe some of the op, you know, the better op-ed writers would say, okay, maybe we should be engaged in persuasion, and you could sort of uh, get a gradual improvement in the climate that way. The, the one that I'm always concerned with is are we just too culturally different to – especially the urban-rural d- divide? I mean that's – that is what 
this was actually about, right? The red states and blue states are not really what it's about because every urban area in a deeply red state is blue. Mm-hmm. Austin, Texas. Exactly. Or, so, yeah. so in that way, are we just too culturally different to not fight over this in the way that we do and, and use the language that we do in the, that we, we view every presidential election as an existential threat to our way of life uh, because the other people who to take power are so different and speak an entirely different language than we do. And so this is the actual problem every four years. Well, but that in that case, you know, the, for one thing, the, you know, the urbanization trend is just is going on. So that, you know, with that, the result will, there will be one side just going to lose, and that'll be the the you know the rural side, uh, and that'll be how that gets resolved. Uh, it won't that won't necessarily be pleasant. A more pleasant thing would be somehow if if these uh, if we developed you know more of what the political scientists call cross cutting identities, where people. You know, people from rural and um, urban Michigan both became Michigan fans, University of Michigan fans, and that identity mattered to them enough that it overcame the uh, the political differences. For someone listening who wants to take this this insightful framework that you have offered, that you articulate in the book, and use it in their own lives, in their own political discourse, what's the takeaway? Like once you're you're aware of these three tribes and the three languages that they speak, how should that change the way that we as individuals do politics? What I would hope is that you would sort of say, all right, what tribe am I in? You know, what, um, you know, and then say, from now on, when somebody speaks the language that resonates with that tribe, I'll be really careful not to overreact and say, oh, yes, you've successfully demonized the other side, or, oh, yes, I really support you. So just to sort of slow down and question your own reaction uh, based on that. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r slash Free Thoughts Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Free Thoughts Pod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. <laughs>